This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by SaneBox. Get some sanity back in your inbox. Take control of your inbox. Get all that stuff out of there that is dragging you down. I'm going to give you a special offer later in the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is Simon Sinek. He is the author of Start With Why, which many of you certainly have read or heard of. And we're going to talk about his latest book, Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't. So thanks for joining me, Simon. Thanks for having me. So I wonder if you could start with a little background. I know a lot of people, particularly uh, your, your TED Talk in Puget Sound and then the book Start With a Why, uh, for many people was their introduction to uh, to your career and your work. I wonder if you could give us a little background uh, before that period. Sure. Um, you know, I, was a, I was a career marketer. Um, I studied cultural anthropology uh, in college and was always sort of fascinated by human behavior. Um, and um, it was actually an experience I had in in that world that sort of set me on the path that I'm on now. Um, I had my own little marketing consultancy, and the first few years went really well and sort of had good clients and made a good living and, and all this stuff, and after my fourth year in business, I sort of didn't love it anymore, um, mm. and and even though superficially I should have been happy, right, as living the American dream, um, um, I was I, I wasn't feeling it, and so I was embarrassed to talk about that I wasn't a happy person because superficially I had nothing to complain about, um, and so all of my energy went into pretending that I was happier than I was. But the problem was when you're in that state, it also like a lot of other things happened. I became paranoid. I thought I was going to get bankrupt. I thought, you know, I thought my employees, you know, nobody trusted me. I, it was a crazy time, and it was um, a friend who came to me and said, "Are you okay?" And it set me on this journey to sort of rediscover my passion. And there was a confluence of events, and I'm so glad that they happened, where I made this discovery, this naturally occurring pattern that I later called the golden circle uh, of these three levels, what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. And everybody knows what they do, and I knew what I did. And some know how they're different or better, and I could tell you what my differentiating value proposition was, but I couldn't tell you why I was doing it. Um, the best I could articulate was to be my own boss or to make a living or all these other things. But those aren't really inspiring causes, you know? And so I went on this journey to discover my why, and it was profound, and it, and it changed my life, and I shared it with my friends, and my friends started making crazy life changes because of it, and my friends would invite me to their homes to share it with their friends, and people just kept inviting me, and I just kept saying yes. And so the growth of all of it was very organic. That's a, that's a really great story. I've not heard that before, actually, um, so I appreciate you sharing that. So did you change your business dramatically uh, at f kind of – on a dime, or was it uh, more that that it evolved as you started writing some of this there was, down? There was a combination. There was a combination of sudden and uh, and slow decisions. So one sudden decision I made, which is when I realized that this is the thing I wanted to pursue, that I no longer wanted to do this consulting work, but I wanted to to, to preach this cause, this thing called the why. I made the very sudden decision to close my office, get out of my lease, and start from scratch because I wanted to do it pure. I wanted to make myself the guinea pig. So that was a pretty sudden decision, and a lot of uh, my friends thought I went out of business because I got out of my lease and didn't have an office anymore um, and got rid of all my employees and everything, like gone, you know? Um, but I'd never been happier or more focused in my life. Some of the slower decisions were, okay, now that I've done that, what the heck am I going to do? Yeah. You know? Um, I didn't know about public speaking. That that came slowly, you know, as I started to get more invitations. 
And I was still doing why consulting. I was helping organizations and CEOs find their, find their why. And so I started down that path. And so over the course of a few years, it sort of, I tried a couple of directions this way and a couple of directions that way until I sort of found a stride, and that's the, that's the path I'm on now. So start with why was essentially a leadership book. I'm not sure everybody, even though it was in the subtitle, I'm not sure everybody uh, viewed it as such, but obviously you've come back with a book with the title Leader in it. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about maybe how those two books connect, because I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I see them very connected. <laughs> sure. Well, my work is all semi-autobiographical. You know, yeah. they're, they're sort of the articulations of the solutions I found to help me in my own journey. And as we just talked about, Start With Why was very much about the loss of passion and how to refine passion and how to be inspired and inspire others. And that was, you know, that was my story. And, and, and the next book was sort of, as I was spending more time with these remarkable people and these remarkable organizations, I started to see differences in environments and different in cultures, differences in cultures. I was spending time with people in the military and I kept meeting these people who had risked their lives for others or people who would risk their lives to save the lives of sometimes people they didn't even like. You know, we're in the business world. We don't even like to give up credit for things, yeah. you know. And so I started to see these, like, two different worlds of, like, people who trusted each other and people who didn't trust each other. And because I would rather work and live amongst people who trust each other and I want to feel trusted and trusting as well, I started asking myself the question, sort of, where does trust come from? And, and, and it, again, it wasn't with the idea of writing a book and it wasn't the idea of creating anything new. I, you know, I thought I was a one-trick pony. You know, it was a good trick, but one-trick pony. <laughs> Um, and so it really was once again just a personal thing where I was trying to trying to direct my life to be amongst people and around people that I really wanted to be around, who I felt safe around. And um, and so that journey led me in a couple of different directions. And I was having dinner with my publisher. It was just we have dinner every now and then. And he says, "What are you working on these days?" I said, "Well, I'm actually really curious about this." And I told him, "He goes, that's your next book," you know, and. Uh, uh, and so that's the journey I, I was on. And so Leaders Eat Last really does pick up where, where Start With Why left off. Uh, they don't have to be read in order. They're not, they're not sequels of each other. But from, from sort of a, an intellectual standpoint, it really does pick up where the other one left off. Well, and I think even from an equipping standpoint, right, if you read Start With Why and, and you get your message and you get that thing that you connect with, it, in, in some yes. ways what you talk about in Leaders Eat Last then becomes how you amplify that. Yes. You know, start with why is how, how do you inspire people and how do you attract people? And then leaders at last is like, okay, good. You've done a good job of, get, of getting them all in. Now what? Yeah. You know, so what, you, you've attracted all the people. Now what are you going to do with them all? So absolutely, there, there is a chronology to them. And, and the title, um, you actually, you, you mentioned uh, you started working with some military folks. It actually comes from a, a bit of a sort of unwritten rule in some branches of the military, or I wouldn't even call it rule, but just uh, uh, practice? Yeah, it's a philosophy. It, it, it is practiced in, in multiple areas of, uh, of the military, but the particular story came from the Marine Corps. I was having a meeting with uh, Lieutenant General George Flynn uh, from the Marine Corps, and he actually wrote the, the, the foreword to the book. Um, and I asked him when I was starting this research, you know, what makes the Marines so good at what they do? And he said simply, officers eat last. And if you go to any Marine Corps chow hall anywhere in the world, what you'll see during chow time is they line up in, term, in rank order. The most junior person eats first and the most senior person eats last. And no one tells them they have to, and uh, it's not in any rule book. It's because of the way they view leadership. They view leadership as a responsibility, not simply a rank. And the one in the leadership position, the one of higher rank, is responsible for those in their charge. And it manifests in funny ways. 
you know, like the, the like the the way they line up in the chow hall. Now, what's really interesting, what's really important, is the leadership impact of that philosophy. Um, so, for example, here's a true story for you. That's actually not in the book. Um, there was a unit of Marines. They were deployed, and it was chow time. And as is the practice, the officer ate last. Except on this particular day, there was no food left for him. And when they went back out into the field, one by one, all of his men brought him some of their food. Because one of the things that's so important to understand about the philosophy of officers eat last is the officers never go hungry. And so this is a really important thing as we translate these lessons into into, uh, into the civilian world, into the business world, which is the practice of the leader of a company putting their people sometimes before themselves means that the people will commit their blood, sweat, and tears to see that that leader's vision is advanced. And they will ensure that the company is well-run and kept safe and going well because they want to make their leader proud. Their leader has done right by them, and they will do right by their leader. That's the most important lesson of this, which is the officers never go hungry. The people are completely devoted to their leaders. You, and I've heard you in other interviews uh, make this parallel, and you talk a lot. I mean, to me, it's pretty clear that this is a lot like parenting, or at least good parenting, (laughs) that, uh, Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of people could relate to that. Well, they might look at their employees and say, you know, those so-and-sos, you know, don't care. They, they won't do anything. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm here to watch them so they don't steal from me. You know, right. and, you, and you think about, about how you, most uh, parents, at least good parents, think about their children. It's, it's I'm here to nurture. Yeah. I'm here to teach. I'm here to make sure that no harm comes to them. And, and I think it's pretty interesting if, if people would actually be able to take that view into a place where they work. Well, you know, leadership comes with a risk. You know, it's a lot of hard work, like parenting. And it's not the kind of thing that you turn on and turn off. You, you know, once you have kids, that's it. You're in. You're a parent. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't have the opportunity. You, it's, the choice to have kids is actually the wrong decision. That's the fun part. The question is, do you want to raise kids? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the hard choice. And like I said, the choice to become a parent is a lifestyle decision. Um, well, the choice to become a leader is a lifestyle decision. It means that you're going to increase the time and energy that you have to commit to others. It means that you have to practice the qualities of leadership every day. It's not just a thing you do at work. You know, leadership is a practice, not an event. Parenting is a, is a practice, it's not an event. Making one big decision, even if it's the right decision, doesn't make you a leader. It just means you one, made one big decision. You know, it, it's, a, it's a daily occurrence, and it's a daily struggle, and it's, it's not always clear, and, and, and sometimes we make the wrong decision. But it's the, it's the belief that I want my people to rise up and be better and stronger and more capable than even they believe they are. Do you think I, I I believe this anyway, and and I know that you've studied this uh, uh, probably extensively in some of the companies you worked with, but I I think that to some some of these qualities that you talk about, I think some people just have them. They're wired uh, that way, or they were raised that way, or or they just have always believed that that's how you're a good person. They're not even thinking about it in terms of leading a company. It's just that's isn't that how you should treat people. Uh, but not everybody is wired that way. Um, and they start a company and they start hiring people and uh, they don't really even think about I'm a leader as much as I'm in charge. Um, so, yeah. so how does somebody change that view or start kind of internalizing this yeah. how to be a leader? Well, when you talk about some people are wired that way, you know, empirically, we're all wired the same way. Um, and it's the manner in which we're raised and the lessons we learn from our parents that will set us on a course. And yes, some do because of their, their upbringing. They, they are sort of, they have a head start and they, are, they exhibit some of those leadership qualities earlier or more robustly than others. But we, leadership is a skill like any other. Uh, it is a choice. We can choose to become leaders. And then as a practice, and we can practice those skills. 
Um, and, you know, like any, any other skill, if you work very, very hard at it, you will become a good leader. If you're lazy and choose not to practice, then you, that's, that, that muscle atrophies. Um, and really, it's, it's a very simple practice. Uh, not an easy, but simple practice. And it's the practice of empathy. It's the practice of putting the well-being of others sometimes before ourselves, especially when danger threatens. So little, little things that we can do to practice leadership. Uh, for example, we're driving to work and someone wants into our lane that we're driving in. Do we move the car up or do we just let them in? Well, we let them in. That's the practice of leadership. You know, when you're in the, in the, in the, in the break room and you, you pour yourself the last cup of coffee, if you put the empty coffee pot back, no one will know. I mean, no one's there. It's okay. The next person will make it. Or do you sacrifice the extra five minutes to, and, and the extra energy to just refill the pot? That's the practice of leadership. Um, if somebody's suffering at work, if somebody's performance is down, do you sit down with them and say, hey, listen, your performance has been uh, a problem lately, and if you don't pick up the numbers, um, you know, I can't guarantee that you're going to have a job here. Or do you say, hey, your performance is down, are you okay? Right. You know? Again, this, this is the practice of leadership. This is the practice of empathy. It's the concern about how others may feel or where they're coming from or the meaning of the things that they're saying, as opposed to many of the knee-jerk reactions that we make on a daily basis. I've heard you um, also uh, draw a conclusion that that lack of leadership may be actually the greatest source of job dis- dissatisfaction. Oh, completely. Um, we are social animals, and we respond to the environments we're in. And uh, bad people, if they're put in a good environment, are capable of good things, and good people, if they're put in a bad environment, are capable of, of bad things. And it's leaders who set the environment. Leaders set the tone. And if we, when we read statistics, and there's any number of studies that have, you know, have, have reported on this, um, but I believe it was Gallup who, who, who studied said that 80% of Americans don't love their jobs, mm. right? Like, how disturbing is that? Yep. I believe fulfillment is a right and not a privilege. It's not for the chosen few who get to say, oh, I love my job. Oh, you're so lucky, you know? It's like we have the right to love going to work. We have the, light, the, we have the right to be fulfilled. And when leaders choose, choose to put numbers before people, then how can we ever feel safe at work? How can we ever feel fulfilled at work? You know, when leaders choose, when they choose to use layoffs as the primary means to balance the books, right? Think about that for a second. They will send you home to your kids, to your spouse, to say, I do not have an income to provide because my company needed to make its numbers this year, right? The folly of that. And forget about the people who were laid off. Think about the people who kept their jobs. How safe do you, they, do you think they feel coming to work the next day, knowing full well that the company's leadership would gladly sacrifice them simply to make a short-term financial adjustment, right? And so, and so we're not getting the best out of people. We never will when these are the choices that we're making. What, what do you say to that? And, I, and I'm tossing you a softball here because I'm certain you've heard <laughs> this. I'm certain you've heard this numerous times. What do you say to that middle manager who says, "Yeah, but." If I don't do X the way I measured, you know, then it's me. Yeah, yeah, and and that's true. And again, remember, leadership is a choice. You know, I know many people who sit at the highest levels of companies who are not leaders. They have authority. We do what they tell us because they have authority over us, but they're not leaders yeah. because we wouldn't follow them. You know, I know many people who sit at the bottom of organizations who have no authority. And yet they've chosen to look after the person to the left of them, and they've chosen to look after the person to the right of them, and they are leaders, right? And so the person who sits in the middle and says, you know, if I stick my neck out, I'm going to get my head cut off, 
Exactly. That's what leadership is. It's the willingness to go first. That's why we call you a leader, because you led, you went first. You were willing to put your neck on the line. You were willing to stand up for the right thing. You were willing to, to say, hold on, there's injustice here. You were willing to try and work hard for the person to the left of you, to the right of you. You know, we're also preoccupied with ourselves and our own success and our own happiness. There's an entire section in the bookshop called self-help, and there's no section in the bookshop called help others. You know? And, and it's the idea that you would, you may actually think of the happiness of the person next to you, God forbid, like, like you may actually concern yourself with the success of the person to the right of you. That is what it means to be a leader, and sometimes it comes with risk. And sometimes it means that you will get your head cut off. But that's the price we pay sometimes to be the leader, you know? In some ways, because this is a really hot topic, although it's it's one that's bantered around in uh, sort of disheveled ways sometimes. But I mean, is somewhat what you're talking about is a healthy culture? Yeah, yes, it is a healthy culture. I mean, a, a culture where we show up to work every day and we feel like the people we work with would watch our backs, where we feel that the information that leadership and management is giving giving us is the truth and not being spun to make themselves look good. You know, leadership, I mean, the, the, the cultures in which we work is very much a feeling. You know, the culture of a company is the equivalent of the character of a person. We refer to the character of a person. You know, is he of good character? Is she of good character? Is she trustworthy? And we assess people. We say, well, you know, yeah, yeah I think that she's, got a strong, she's got a strong character. I, I, I like her, you know? Well, it's the same. It's the same. And we assess the culture of the company, saying the same thing. Are they of strong character? Are they of good moral fiber? And if the character of the person is good, they will make good friends and they will make good colleagues. And if the culture of a company is of high moral fiber, well, they will make great places to work. Let me ask you a question. How many emails do you have in your inbox right now? A hundred, a thousand, ten thousand? But you can't just delete them all. There has to be a way to take your inbox back over. If it's running your life, there was a point in my business where I felt like all I did was delete email. And then I found a tool called SaneBox. It really allows you to take back control of your inbox, of your email. Uh, it starts off by taking everything you've got in there today and figuring out what's important, what's not important, and creating folders and places for it to go that in some cases you'll never see again, but in other cases you can quickly check. Uh, there's also tools in there to remind you when you need to follow up on an email. Uh, it's actually incredibly accurate, and I have worked with the folks at SaneBox to get you a discount, my listeners. So if you visit SaneBox, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X.com, slash duct tape, you're going to find that you can get a $25 discount just because you are a listener of this show. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X, SaneBox.com slash duct tape. One of the things, and you've said this uh, a number, that you've used the word trust a number of times, and I think it's really interesting that you also, I, I think a lot of, one of the mistakes a lot of leaders make is that they feel their job is to be liked, or they feel their job is to be feared, <laughs> one, one of those yeah. maybe. Um, and, yeah. and you talk a lot about this idea that, that really their job is to be trusted. They don't have to be liked right. Uh, right. necessarily. In fact, you talk about a lot of leaders who aren't necessarily fun people to have at the cocktail party, but, right. uh, but people right. will do whatever because they trust them. Correct. Uh, you know, um, 
a good parent is not a, is not the same as a good friend. Yes. You know, the, the worst parents are the, the parents who try hard to be their kid's best friend. It doesn't work that way. You're their parent, not their friend, right? And any leader that sets out to be feared, well, that's the same thing as a dictator. And it might work in the short term, but it's not a very stable system. Succession is really a big problem. And at the end of the day, it foments revolution. Yeah. Um, and it creates, it creates anxiety, and you're not going to get the best out of people, you know, in a dictatorship. I don't think there's a dictatorship on the planet that is sort of an economic powerhouse, you know, at least not for very long, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it's, and, and, and it's because we don't get the best ideas out of people that way. People are willing to give their ideas and, and share what they're learning when they, when they believe that it'll advance the greater good. If the if they believe that by sharing too much of what they've learned, they you know weak organizations are the ones where the people sh- keep all of their knowledge because they think that that's what gives them their competitive edge and protects them from losing their job because they know more than everybody else. Those are weak organizations. Those are very weak organizations. You use um, a, a great example uh, about you know how you have to really make this happen, and you you talk about alcohol. Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 step program, not the 11 step program. (laughs) And uh, I I think that's, uh, I wonder if you could maybe share that illustration. Sure. In the unhealthiest of corporate environments, we become literally addicted to making the numbers. It's a, you know, when when the primary means we drive or influence or incentivize behavior in our companies is uh, hit the number, get the bonus. If that's the predominant means by which we motivate people, um, we can literally create an addiction to making the numbers, just like we could become addicted to alcohol or gambling. They're all dopamine addictions. They're all basically the same. And so to create a healthy work environment, we have to first overcome the addiction. We have to first admit that maybe we have a problem in our corporate culture, that maybe it's unhealthy. Okay, that's step number one. And what Alcoholics Anonymous has shown us is that they've been helping people overcome a dopamine addiction for 75 or 80 years with great success. And they know that if you master all 11 steps and not the 12th, you'll probably start drinking again. But if you master the 12th step, you will beat the disease. The 12th step is to help another alcoholic. It's service. In other words, when we commit ourselves to helping another person overcome the thing that we are challenged with most, not only is this how we find fulfillment, but this is actually how we build trust and actually uh, advance the greater good. This is, this is how we advance the organization. So if you're unhappy at work, how do you help somebody else who's unhappy at work? If you're struggling to learn something at work, how do you help, help somebody else who's struggling to work, help uh, learn something at work? And if you're struggling to be the leader you wish you had, how do you help someone else become the leader they wish they had? And this, ultimately, this idea of service, it's the most human of attributes, you know? And this is, great leadership is nothing more than, than being the best human being possible. That's really all leadership right. is, you know? <laughs> yeah, but from a very practical standpoint, as I listen to you, you you're also uh, creating leaders within your organization, uh, which is o- only going to, uh, to, you know, to help attract more people. Of course. It's yeah. called legacy. Yeah. Legacy. It's legacy is when those who follow us work hard to uphold the standards and values that we, that we instituted. That's what legacy is. Legacy isn't nostalgic. It's not like remember when, he, when, when that guy used to run the company, how great it used to be. That's not legacy. That's nostalgia. Yeah. Right? Legacy is that it continues. We have legacy in the United States. Our founding fathers laid down a set of principles. You know, they, they, they declared why we needed a country. It's called the Declaration of Independence. And they laid down a structure as to how we should go about providing this freedom for all. You know, we call it the Constitution. And every successive president, some better than others, have committed themselves to advancing those ideals. That's called legacy. Those guys are long dead, and yet their ideas live on. Their legacy lives on. That's, that's what it's supposed to be. 
That's what every single company has the capacity to do. You know, most companies don't have long-term plans. They plan for a quarter or a year. Right. You know, few of the companies that have a five or ten-year plan, and if they do, they certainly don't follow it. And so what is the 50- and 100-year plan? Stick to that. That's how you create legacy. It's like creating something for your family to have, you know? I want to finish up with a couple uh, book questions, not not related, specific, well, somewhat related to, to this uh uh, to this book, but uh, not necessarily about the topic. Um, one sure. of the things that you did, uh, and I, and I am also an author, and so I'm, this is sort of personal for me. One of the things that you did, uh, in this book, I noticed in the digital version is that you have, um, some embedded, um, audio and video. And, yeah. uh, I, I'm curious, uh, about how, what, what, what your thinking was there, how that went, uh, uh, if, if you're getting feedback on, on that component. Sure. Um, basically, what you're referring to is we have two versions of the ebook. We have the standard ebook that people can download to their digital device, and we have what they call the enhanced ebook, which has uh, little videos in between uh, each chapter or each section, I should say. Um, you know, it was nothing more complicated, quite frankly, than the publisher coming to me and say, "Would you be willing to do an enhanced ebook? It basically requires you making these videos." And mm. I said, "Sure." Mm. Uh, it was. It wasn't anything more complicated than that, and. You know, my whenever I show up to do anything, my goal is always to give people more. Um, my my goal is not to simply reiterate what is written, but to give people some of the nuance, some of the story, some of the the backstory um, that goes that that maybe ended up on the cutting room floor. Just to help them understand why that why that section exists. And so, what I try to do in each of those uh, little videos was provide that to provide some of the nuance and backstory that adds a little more color and context to each of the sections that they're about to read. Uh, final question is, I always just love to ask authors this. I wonder if you'd share maybe a couple books that you are either currently reading, you read recently, or you just think everybody should read. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning sure. should be on everyone's list, yes. obviously. I think that's the standard. That's, that's, an, um, that's almost an annual read for me. That's an annual read, yeah. Uh, David Marquet, uh, Turn the Ship Around. Um, his is um, really sort of the, the yin to my yang. Uh, I speak in a sort of philosophical, you know, sort of idealistic terms, and, and David's work is very, very practical and takes my ideals and gives you the how to do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, my work is often, you know, if, if anything, it's criticized for saying, yeah, but you, you didn't tell us enough how to. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, um, David's work really takes the how to's that I give and builds upon them, which I love. I love. So Turn the Ship Around is a great book. Um, there's also two documentaries I would recommend. Uh, the first one is called Kumare, K U M A R E. It's not. Uh, it wasn't meant to be about leadership. It's about this sort of guru culture that exists in the world. Hmm. And this documentarian set out to, to make fun of it, really. Hmm. And something remarkable happens in the course of making this documentary. Um, it went in a completely different direction, and it actually ends up being a fantastic leadership study. It is really brilliant and incredibly entertaining. Um, and the other one that I would highly recommend is a documentary called Senna, S-E-N-N-A. And it's about the Brazilian race car driver, Ayrton Senna. And even if you don't like race car driving, it doesn't matter. It's a really amazing tale. And it, it's two archetypes. Um, Ayrton Senna, who does something for the passion and the love of the sport, and Alain Prost, his nemesis, who does something for the results and for the numbers. And you really see starkly the difference between the person who does something for numbers, who's more willing to cheat, and you see something who does something for the passion, who commands a loyalty from his own people, even his own competitors, that is unbelievable. The other race car drivers stand up to support Ayrton Senna because of who he is and the reason he shows up. It's really a remarkable, remarkable documentary of what, how stark the difference is, is when we show up for passion and when we show up for numbers. 
Very, very cool. I, I went to a dinner last night that was put on by a, a, a coffee roaster and, and they, you know, they did these incredible dishes where they used coffee in every dish and they had a, a, one of their employees that, uh, that would just experiment with making coffee cocktails. And it, and as I heard you telling that story, he, last night he was explaining, you know, here's how this drink was made. And one of the drinks took like four days of, you know, slow dripping to, you know, to, to make this thing. And, and I was talking to him about it later and he said, yeah, it took me about six tries to get that one right. Yeah. Um, and it, it's like, you're so willing to put in that kind of, you know, time and energy. I'm sure it's not paid for putting that time and energy. Yeah. In. You know, that, that you, when you talk to somebody with that kind of passion, it really is pretty amazing, isn't it? And we see it every day in our business world. Things are done with passion, are done with love. You know, it's like, it's like family dinner tastes better than cafeteria food. Even if all the uh, uh, quantities are the same, you know, uh, uh, you know, the same, you know, they're, they're just rounded up. You know what yep, I mean? Yep, yep, yep. Um, uh, and the reason is because, you know, your homemade food is made with love. That's the missing ingredient. Yeah. And, uh, and we see this in, in, our, in our everyday world. You know, things that are made of passion are good for us and taste good. And things that are done for the numbers, they add chemicals and they bring the costs down. And it's about getting it out the door faster and cheaper. And the passion goes away. And there's, there's a place for that. But it's the balance that I, that I criticize. You know, alcohol is fine. Too much alcohol is bad. Gambling is fine. Too much gambling is bad. Doing things for the numbers is fine. Doing things only for the numbers is bad. You know, it's, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the balance I'm trying to, I'm, my work is, is an effort to restore the balance. Well, with the the 80% of folks out there that uh, <laughs> that you talked about, uh, there, there's certainly lots of room for people to come up with their why they might actually uh, be in business, isn't there? I agree. <laughs> so, Simon, thanks so much. Great book, Leaders Eat Last, and uh, obviously can be acquired anywhere that books are sold. Is there anywhere you want to send people, a uh, website or, or anything that uh, they can find? You know, I have, all the, I have all the standard fares, everybody yeah. else. Yeah. You know, yeah. our website is startwithwhy.com um, or leadersleadlast.com. It goes to the same place. Um, you know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. You know, all the standard fare. Cool. Thanks, uh, Simon. And uh, I, in fact, I... I saw. Some, I can't remember where it is now, but uh, I think we're speaking at an event um, coming up uh, this uh, in the fall sometime, and it, oh, it escapes me which one it was now, but or is now. But uh, well, I look we'll, forward to we'll, you. Yeah, we'll run into you out there on the road. I'm uh, looking forward All to right. it. Take care. Thanks so Bye. much. Bye. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire Yap Media and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. 
So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.